Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hey, good morning, friends. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to be together this morning. For joining us online, I want to say a special welcome to you as well. It was the mid-1960s when French philosopher Jacques Derrida introduced the concept of deconstruction. It wasn't entirely new to him. He was building off of some ideas that Friedrich Nietzsche had presented, but at its core, deconstruction in the way that Derrida presented it was a critical approach challenging the dominant narratives of the day and encouraging people to sort of reconstruct or tear down what they'd been given in order to pursue something new or different. At its core, deconstruction holds this, um, what some might call a, a chronological snobbery that the new is inherently better than the old. Now, this idea has gotten into the life of faith as well. My guess is you've heard that term deconstruction at some point in time. Deconstruction when it comes to faith is questioning or dismantling a particular set of beliefs or assumptions that you were handed in order to figure out what you really truly believe. And and whether it's because of church hurt or whether it's because of intellectual challenges that you have to the gospel, or maybe it's because of a a presumed narrow sexual ethic that's presented in scripture, or just simply the very awkward dance that religion and politics have engaged in. There are people deconstructing all around us. You may be one of those people. Uh, One study showed that roughly 60% of Kids who graduate from high school as followers of Jesus will go through some sort of deconstruction in their college years and beyond, 60%. So I can remember sitting across the coffee table from a friend of mine who was in ministry and our conversation went a little bit something like this. They said, I'm just not sure I believe it anymore. And I said, what what do you mean by it? And they responded, like any of it, any of it. And it, and it broke my heart, but I think it was a picture of what so many people at one point or another are wrestling with. And it can be disorienting to go, where, where do I land on this? What do I believe about this? It can be disheartening to go, I'm not sure where to go from here. But I also think it's a posture that's just latent with possibility. Because anytime you're deconstructing something, the question is, what are you deconstructing? And then what are you rebuilding? In the movie, The Hobbit, there's this masterful exchange between Gandalf and Bilbo. Gandalf uh, says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging. And it's very difficult to find anyone. Bilbo responds, I should think so. At least in these parts, we are quite plain folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. They make you late for dinner. I can't see what anybody sees in them. (laughs) Gandalf says, you'll you'll have a tale or two to tell when you come back. And Bilbo responds, can you promise that I'll come back? (laughs) Gandalf says, no, but if you do, you will not be the same. And I think that's 
the way that life works, that life is an adventure and that we are constantly in the process of of changing, of growing, of becoming. See, here's the truth. You are not who you were and you are not yet who you will fully become. That's life. We are in the process of becoming. I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it. He said this, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little bit different than it was before. And if you take your whole life as a whole, with all the innumerable choices that you make, you are slowly turning the central thing, you, into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and others and self, or into someone who is in a state of war and hatred with God and others and self. Like, wow. Clive Staples Lewis, when you say it like that, it makes who we're becoming a really important issue. Maybe, maybe even a sacred issue. And an issue that I would tell, say, is at the very heart of the reason that John wrote his gospel. See, John wants to serve as a, as a deconstruction and reconstruction guide of sorts. He wants to call both Jews and Greeks to reimagine the God that they perceive. And he wants to call them to not only reimagine him, but to reimagine who he is inviting them to become. So if you have a Bible, would you open with me to John chapter one? We're gonna be starting in verse six today. If you were with us last week, we launched this series. We're gonna be in John, uh, Gospel of John for roughly 44 weeks. We're just diving into this gospel. And last week we saw in the first five verses that at the center of the universe is a person of Jesus, not an impersonal force, not an operating principle, but his personhood. God in three persons, blessed Trinity is at the center of it all. And John launches us into his gospel by making the point that Jesus is the one who created and sustains. Jesus is the one who shines light into darkness. And Jesus is the one who makes dead things alive. And from there, he's going to continue inviting us to wrestle with this person of Jesus. And here's what he says, starting in verse six. Are you there? Oh, come on. Are you there? Hey, wonderful. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, quick time out. This is gonna get a bit confusing because there are two different Johns that we're gonna be talking about. One is the author John. The other is the John that's referenced here. You might refer to him as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. But this is John the Baptist is who John, the author, is writing about here. And he begins by saying, there was... And it may not seem like all that important of an idea, but it's actually a theme that weaves its way throughout the chunk of scripture that we're gonna be studying today and that we studied last week. In the Greek, it's the word ginomai. Will you say that with me? Ginomai. And ginomai means to become or to make. If you go back to verse three, it says that he made the world, 
Not anything that was in the world was made apart from him. He made it all. It used the word three times, ginomai, to make, to make, to make. And now we see that the one who made it all is taking all that creative power and energy and forcing it into a man named John. That same power that created the world creates John and calls him onto the scene to make a declaration about who Jesus is. John continues and says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to how many? Everyone was coming into the world. I love that John says that John is like a witness. You might picture him on a, in a court testifying telling of what he's seen, what he's heard, what he's touched, what he's experienced from this person named Jesus who he walks with, but he's on the testimony um, seat as it were in order to declare truth to you so that you might do something. Did you catch what it was? That you might believe, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And at the center of John's witness, we also see the very reason that John, the author, wrote this entire book. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, these things I've written, and he's talking about the book that he's composed. These things we have written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John points at the one who illuminates darkness and he says, he shines on everyone. He wants to shine on you. And I love that the very first invitation, the very first call in the book of John is not behave. It's not perform. It's Believe. It's believe. He continues verse 10 and he says, He was in the world, speaking of Jesus, and the world was made through him. By the way, was made. There's that word genomai again. The word world became through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The The creator steps into the story and is rejected. The the lover comes to just shower his love on his bride and, and his bride rejects him. Instead of rolling out the red carpet like you would expect for somebody welcoming a king, humanity says, no, thank you. We don't want any from you. Thank you very much, but you can take it and go back. And shockingly, In the midst of all of that rejection, there is an invitation, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And there's that word become again, that word Ginomai, that sort of functions as tracks like a train for it to this passage of scripture to just roll down and gain steam in order to plunge itself deep within our heart. Because now we've seen 
that the same creative God who created and spoke the heavens into existence also commissioned and sent John. And now we see that he's using his creative prowess, his power to make you and I children of the most high God. Hard stop. Let's close in prayer. Okay, just kidding, just kidding. But I, I, I love gospel math. Um, and I love to sort of just try to imagine what John is saying in a way that's pretty simple. And here's what I think he's saying. Is that when we receive, when we believe, it allows us to become. It allows us to become. And see, here's the thing, you guys, here's the thing. What you receive will always shape who you become. The words that you've received into your heart that have found fertile soil in you have shaped who you've become. The events that you've walked through to a large degree have shaped who you've become. The narratives that you've believed, that you've received have shaped who you become. But John is telling us a new creation story. He's telling us something new can become out of the old if we're willing to step in and to believe in Jesus. In fact, think back to the very first few verses of John's gospel. He began with, in the beginning was the word, and he's echoing back to the original Genesis creation story. Well, if you read all the way through Genesis chapter one, what's the crowning jewel of God's creation? Raise your hand. Humanity, people are, you are. So in John's recreation story, it makes sense that he would tell us that Jesus has come to make us children of God. He's bringing us back to the beginning of the story. He's uniting us with the God that we were always designed to be in relationship with. He's giving us back the sense of honor and standing with him that we were always designed to have. Listen to the way that the psalmist would talk about us. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Which is a great question. God, in light of who you are, why in the world would you care about me? And then he interjects as if to cut himself off and says, yet you have made him, us, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned, raise your hand again, us with glory and honor. That's God's design. But I think we'd agree that something went horribly wrong. I mean, we feel it in our bones and the result of our rejection of God is a crisis in our identity because we don't know who we are anymore because who we are was intended to be defined by who he is. Oh man, but I just love that God will not let us go. He will not let us spiral into fatalistic oblivion. God is building back his family by shining light into the darkness, by creating a new humanity. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased verse 12 in the message. He says, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. So good. Because becoming children of God is about becoming our true selves. 
And it sounds wonderful and it sounds beautiful and it is, but it's also really, really painful. Because in order to become my true self, for you to become your true self, we've got to reckon with the false self. The self that we put out there for others to see. The, the self that we use to define our identity and defend our insecurity, that self has to be stripped down. Those fig leaves have to be taken away. And the true you has to come into the open so that the light of Jesus can shine on it. And sometimes that hurts before it heals. Can I get an amen? It does. It does, but it's what Jesus is doing. And so I just want you to catch this implication in here and this may offend some, and, but I'm not here to make everybody happy. I'm here to tell you what's true. The implication is that you cannot, the implication is that you cannot reject God and become your true self. That in order to be the you that was designed by God, you've got to be in relationship with the designer. Now, this is John inviting us to reconsider new creation. It's, it's a new becoming, becoming, genomai, children of God. But the question is, how do we become his children? And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, um, I just any guesses what word this is? Thank you. Three of you said it. Praise be to God. I will take it. And it's the seventh time the word ginomai is used in John chapter one. And it's as though John is taken by us by the hand and he's led us to the pinnacle of becoming. And he points at the word, the logos, the one through whom everything was created. And he tells us that word became. Why did that word become? so that you and I might become children of God. See, the world becomes through Jesus. John becomes a witness by that same power. Humanity becomes children of God because the son of God became human. And what John's telling us is that we can become children of God because God became human. We call this incarnation. Athanasius, the fourth century bishop of Alexandria in his seminal work on the incarnation wrote, he became what we are that we might become what he is. I mean, just pause and soak that in for a moment. The same creative power that spoke the stars into existence has been harnessed and launched towards us to make us children of the most high God. I mean, we see that the word was with God. And now we see that the word dwells among us. And John uses this word. He uses the word flesh. He could have used other words. He could have used the word, well, he could have used the word man. The, the son of man became a man, but he didn't. He could have said the son of man became human, but he didn't. He uses the word flesh. And I don't know that John could have chosen a more diametrically opposed word from the word logos. I mean, he wants to expand the categories in our brain. So he chooses a word that's almost a, a crude word, 
a word that would cause us to go, well, well, he couldn't descend that low. He's the creator of it all. How could he get that low? I love the way that poet George Herbert put it when he said, the God of power as he did ride in his majestic robes of glory, resolved to light and so one day he did descend undressing all the way. Undressing, that captures the ethos of the word flesh. It's just a barrenness that John wants us to capture. This tension embodied in flesh is the word, the one who made it all. The, the, the one who made the stars is in the dirt. The one crowned in glory is now in the place of, of humility. Why? So that we might become. So, so that we might be made different. So that we might be brought back into union with God. The union we were always designed for. I mean, catch this. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt could literally be translated tabernacled. See, see John, once again, he's winking and nodding at the new creation story. He's retold about the way the heavens were created. He's retold about humanity. And now he's just walking us into the book of Exodus. And he's saying, now let me talk to you about a new tabernacle. And let me talk to you about a new temple. See, the temple or the tabernacle was at the very center point of Israelite worship. But more importantly, it was the very place that the nation of Israel encountered God. It was a place where Moses got to meet with God face to face. And John is declaring to us a new tabernacle is on the scene. Jesus is now the way God meets with humanity face to face. I recently heard a pastor friend of mine talk about the great preacher Priscilla Schreier. And she used this illustration that I think is just Brilliant and paints a picture for us about what's going on in incarnation. Did you know that almost as quickly as baby zebras are born, they are whisked away from the herd by their mom? And they're taken to be alone with their mom for about two days. And during this time period, the mom will look at her baby and that's basically all that she does. She looks at her baby. She feeds her baby. She gives her baby the nutrients. But did you know that every single zebra, their stripe pattern is a little bit different. So their stripe pattern is sort of like a, a, a fingerprint or a thumbprint. And so during that two days, this mommy zebra is showing her baby, this is who I am. This is what I smell like. This is what I look like. Now you'll be able to pick me out from the rest of the herd. And I want you to know I'm going to provide for your every need. And I want you to know that I'm going to protect you. And I want you to know that I'm going to care for you. And I want you to know that you are safe with me. Sitting nose to nose with his mom, this baby zebra will know her smell, will know her markings, will know her identity, and will lock it into his or her heart. It's called imprinting. And incarnation is about imprinting. It's Jesus face to face with humanity saying, I want you to know me. 
I want you to look at me face to face. I want you to know my identity, who I am at my core, because who I am at my core, if you can receive it, it will shape who you become. So lock it in your heart. See, here's the question though. When we look at Jesus and he imprints on us, his character, his nature, what do we receive? I'm so glad you asked that because John is gonna tell us, listen to what he says going on. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen face to face like a mama zebra looking at her baby. We have seen his what? His glory. We have seen his glory. See, when the tabernacle was completed, the glory of God came and dwelt in the tabernacle. When the temple was completed, the glory of God comes and dwells in the temple. When Jesus, the word made flesh who tabernacled among us comes, we see the glory of God on full display among us in humanity. That word glory means weight. It means beauty. It means majesty. It means the attributes of God on display for us to be awe struck. And what Jesus is saying, or what John is saying, is that when we look at Jesus and he imprints on us, we become his children and we become alive to wonder. Alive to wonder. And I'm sure I sound a bit like a broken record at this point, but once again, John is dancing with the Old Testament. Listen to this exchange between Moses and God. Moses says to God, Please show me your glory. And he says, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the story goes on that God passes by Moses who's covered in the cleft of a rock. God himself covers Moses so he doesn't see his glory and so he doesn't die. And he passes by his backside and almost like breadcrumbs falling from a table, he allows Moses to see the backside of his glory. And now John says, we have seen his majesty his beauty, his power, his attributes on display all around us. And throughout John's gospel, we see this theme coming back again, his very first miracle, the sign that he does at Cana at the wedding banquet where he changes water into wine, more on that in a few weeks, says this, Jesus, uh, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and he manifested his what? Glory. And his disciples believed in him. So his disciples get to see his glory firsthand. But did you know that seeing God's glory through the face of Jesus did not end when Jesus ascended to heaven? Did you know that that's still an invitation that's on the table for us today? Listen to the apostle Paul. He wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, and we, how many? All with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That, that's a journey of becoming. That's a journey of changing. We might even say it's a sacred becoming. 
from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Paul's saying, listen, because the spirit lives in us, we now have the ability to look on the face of Jesus. And as we look on his face, we are transformed by his glory. When we see his glory, we start to become more and more like him. Are you alive to this wonder? Are you awake to it? Do you have eyes to see it? And John continues and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace. Don't say the next part yet. We're gonna get there. Full of grace. Now, grace is a theme he's gonna develop over these next few verses. And then he's gonna just let it go for the rest of his book. He doesn't use that word again after chapter one. I think it's at least in part because he's just simply describing grace throughout the whole book. I mean, where would you stop? Where would you not point it out? It's all grace from here on out. But listen to the way over the next few verses he describes it. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was, Ginomai once again, but I don't have time before me. For from his fullness, we have all received. Remember what you receive shapes who you become. So what do we receive from Jesus? Grace upon grace. Grace that never runs out. Grace that never Ends As children of God, we look at Jesus and he imprints on us his glory and his goodness and grace. That word in the Greek grace is the word charis, and it means literally the Lord's favor that's freely extended to his people. Now, I read this one lexicon that talked about this word grace, and I just thought, oh, that's it. That's it. This person wrote that it's a picture of God giving himself away to his people because he is always leaning towards us in love. And I thought like that mama zebra, right? Like he's imprinting love on us because that's what's in his heart for us. And as his kids, as his children, we are formed in favor. We are formed in favor. I've shared this with you before, but I was um, for a number of years, a backpacking guide for young life. I love spending time in the outdoors and I started guiding before there were GPSs that you could take out on the trail. So we needed to learn how to read a paper topographic, topographic map. And if you were to look at a topo map, um, you would see two different kinds of rivers on a topo map. One of them would look like this. It'd be a dotted line and it's an intermittent stream. And here's what that means. At certain points of the year, that stream is running. When there's snow melt and snow runoff, that stream is alive and well. But then when you get into summer and into fall, you can forget about getting any water from that stream. You need to figure it's not gonna be running because it most likely won't. There's another kind of stream on a topo map and it's a solid blue line and it's called a perennial stream. This stream is typically fed by groundwater or a spring and it's running all year. 
If you're on a trail that crosses over that stream, you know you can fill your water bottle up there. You can have 100% confidence it will be flowing. Now, let me ask you, the grace of God, is it an intermittent stream? Like when you stick the dismount and when you nail it, God's like, oh yeah, I've got my grace on you now. When you do what you quote unquote should do or what you were designed to do, when you make the right decisions, when you don't blow it horribly, is that when the grace of God flows to you? No, no, okay, praise be to God. No, the grace of God is a perennial stream, constantly flowing, always coming towards you. You blow it terribly, grace upon grace. You fail sexually, grace upon grace. You say something that you wish you could regret, you wish you could take back, grace upon grace. You don't handle the conflict well, grace upon grace. You're battling addiction, grace upon grace. You run out of energy and you're exhausted, grace upon grace. His grace is a perennial stream. It is always flowing towards you on your best day and on your worst day. His grace is coming at you 100% because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I think Jesus wants us to look at him today and he wants to imprint on us. There will never be a day my grace runs out on you. It's never gonna run dry. But wait, there's more. Because Jesus isn't just full of grace. He's full of grace and what? Truth. Truth. And I, I just, I love that Jesus Um, read the book, never split the difference, okay? Because he's going, I'm not gonna be like 50% grace and 50% truth. He's like, I'm 100% of both. And that's really, really good news for people like you and me. Because my guess is you've met people who are all grace and it didn't seem like they stood for anything. And you've also met people who were all truth and it didn't seem like they cared about anyone. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not grace or truth or grace. I'm 100% grace and truth because we need both. This word truth, John will use 24 times in his writings. And I think it's captured best by John chapter 14, where Jesus himself says, I am the way, the what? Truth and the life. Truth simply means that which corresponds to reality. Truth is the way that the world actually works. Which makes the statement, that's my truth, doesn't have to be your truth, a bit perplexing because something is either true or it's not. It's the way that the world works or it isn't the way that the world works. I think one of the best ways to think about truth is to picture an arrow flying through the air. An arrow flies true if it's straight and it goes, sorry, Daniel, where you shoot it, right? If an arrow is bent, it's untrue and it will not go where it's designed to go. So John claims that Jesus is full of truth. And by doing that, he's claiming that Jesus' teachings and his life are perfectly aligned with the way that God designed humanity to live. And so Jesus wants to look at us like that mama zebra looking at her baby. He wants us to see us and he wants us to become his children by being aligned with his design, his truth. There's this famous movie um, 
entitled A Few Good Men that came out in 1992, so flashback, where Jack Nicholson is a military lawyer and he's in this courtroom and he, he screams, you want the truth? Say it with me. You can't handle the truth, right? And it, if your vein didn't pop out of your neck when you said it, you didn't say it right, hey? You can't handle the truth. And I read John that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And I think the question for us is, can we handle his truth? Like the call to love our enemies, can we handle that truth? The call to pray for those who persecute us, can we handle that truth? The reality that our sexuality is designed by God and that it's sacred, can we handle that truth? The call to be generous with our time, with our stuff, with our money, can we handle that truth? Can you handle the truth? And see, throughout John's gospel, he's gonna come back to this idea of truth. He's gonna come back to Jesus presented as the truth. The one who flies through space and time exactly the way that God designed humanity to live. And he's gonna use, John is going to point us to Jesus by allowing us to see the way that God always designed humanity to be in relationship with him and in relationship with others. Can you handle the truth? Will you respond to the truth? John continues, for the, love, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came. Ah, there's that word again, genomai, came through Jesus Christ. Now notice what John's doing. If you look at verse 16, this is where he says that Jesus came full grace upon grace. And now it's a double meaning. Not only will grace never run out, But he says, for the law was given through Moses. That's grace. That's a grace. There's a reason David writes about the law and says, I delight in your law. And he's saying now upon that grace, another grace has come. The grace of Jesus, the Messiah and his grace, full of it, full of grace and full of truth. He goes on and says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Oh, what a beautiful picture. This word, this word made him known in the Greek is one word and it's where we get our word exegesis from. So literally, Jesus has exegeted God. If you exegete a passage of scripture, you go to that passage of scripture and you study it and you do your best to draw out from it what its core message is, what the truth is that's there. You wanna know why the author writes this and what's in here for me to see today. That's exegesis. And what John says is that Jesus exegetes or puts on display God the Father. What a beautiful picture. And when he looks at us to imprint on us, becoming his children, he shows us his heart. He goes, this is what I'm like. Dr. Donald McCullough in his book, The Trivialization of God, he told this story about a high tower in Trafalgar Square. Up on top of the tower, you see Lord Admirable, Admiral Nelson. And the only problem with the statue on top of the tower is that the tower is 160 feet tall. So people would go up to the tower and look at the top and go, looks cool. All right, 
No idea what's on top because they couldn't see it. So what they did was they created an exact replica of Lord Admiral Nelson and they brought it down from the very pinnacle and they put it on eye level so that everybody who walked up to the tower could see what was on top. This, this is what Jesus has done for the human race. Now we can see what God is like. God is like Jesus. There was never a time when God was unlike Jesus. Or as Jesus himself would say to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So friends, if you're wondering what God is like, look no further than Jesus. And so my question is, will you allow John to be your guide to help you tear down some of those ideas about God that you have in your heart and in your mind that don't align with the revelation of Jesus? Those are worth deconstructing so that you can construct a view in your heart and your mind of who God is that aligns with Jesus and that aligns with the totality of scripture. Because knowing what God is like is not some way to satisfy some latent curiosity in our life. It's not a way to be able to answer all the theological questions that we have. Knowing what God is like is central to who we genomai, who we become. And the central invitation at the beginning of this 18 verses in John's letter that he's going to write 21 chapters of at the very beginning in the center of it all is this question, do you believe? Because in believing, you then become. See, belief in God, in Jesus is the entry point to becoming God's child. And you have to reckon with that invitation today, you guys. You have to reckon with it because you either receive it or you reject it, but there's no third option. But I've got to warn you, I've got to warn you. If you receive it, it's an adventure. If you receive it, I've got to warn you, you will never be the same. You will become someone new. You'll be on a journey of sacred becoming. So what do you say? Are you up for the adventure? I want, I want to just end our time by just creating some space for you. I just want to just invite you to, to look on Jesus and to ask him to imprint on you what he wants you to receive as his child. I don't know, for me, this, this picture of Jesus is helpful because I love his eyes. And I just wanna end our, our time together by inviting you to, to ask Jesus, um, how do you want me to see your glory anew? Would you ask him how you want, he wants you to experience his grace anew? How he wants you to respond to his truth anew? How he wants to reveal his heart to you anew? Like a, 
mama zebra looks at her child for those two days and imprints on them, would you ask the spirit of God to show you the face of Jesus Christ that he might imprint on you and that you might be transformed or become from one degree of glory to the next. Spirit of God, would you show us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And Jesus, as your children, would you just imprint on us in new ways your glory, your majesty, your beauty? Wake us up to see it, please. Jesus, would you just, like a, like a stream that's always raging right towards our heart, would you pour out your grace in new and fresh ways? Spirit of God, where we're out of alignment with you, where we're flying through life in a way where we're not going to hit the bullseye. You designed us to hit, where we're out of alignment. Would you bring us back with your truth? God, give our hearts hunger for your truth. And Lord, where we've got a picture of you that's warped, that's off, that's wrong, and we've received something or given something that doesn't align with Jesus, God, would you replace it? Spirit of God, allow us to receive a better word, a better logos, one who would give himself for us. Make us, shape us, mold us. Same power that created the heavens, recreate us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.